try out practice Oh, it was great. I, mean, I like the four block technique. Was that what you guys were working on a little of that right there where you'd have two balls up and you'd have the, the blocker would shift and then move back to the other ball. That's pretty, that was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, that's a little bit of everything we're going on with right now. I appreciate the the run by. Dude, I was I'm fired up because like as you saw on my Instagram, I was breaking down the points, and honestly, it wasn't as good as I made it out to be for you the first time I talked to you. So I wanted to kind of apologize um, <laughs> that, that I kind of had it in my head a little different because even though you did have five seventeen, so only three of them are technically replaceable. So oh, that's exactly why I was excited to have you on the podcast. <laughs> We have Ed Keller here, ladies and gentlemen, on the podcast. And dude, yeah, hey, we've been you're not to... you're not recording yet. Travis. Oh, yeah, Sorry. we're oh, on. It is recording. We're oh, you're yeah. recording. Oh, that shoot. was the I'm... Ed. That was the perfect intro. I'm stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, try. I... Go ahead. Go ahead. Try. I know so we so I was like, yeah, let's just let's just keep it rolling. This is getting too good. Um, but no, when we were chatting, we've been chatting a bunch of, over the last few days. A way better grasp on the landscape of beach volleyball nationally than anyone else out there. And it's not that our fans of our sport aren't interested. It's just really hard to figure out. And you're the one guy who understands else and gets the numbers and is fascinated by all of it. So I was like, yes, we got to have Ed on the show. <laughs> Hold on, I'm coming me. back. I'm coming back. I just froze up, but I'm coming back. Okay, you're keep back going. Now. I'm back. <laughs> Basically, you just helped me understand the situation better because I'm one of those people who doesn't really get, I mean, you know, I can sit down and pull up the spreadsheets. I don't like looking at it too much, but it's good to understand what the landscape is and where you stand. And I just figured all the fans want to know it too, but they don't understand it. So why not bring Ed on the show and let's talk volley because you have so much experience as a fan of the sport and a player. Yeah, thanks, Try. Well, here's the thing is that from my perspective, you know, I, I'm a math science guy. So, mm -hmm. you know, in my background, you know, being a physics major from Brown University and, and working in science my whole life, but thinking about volleyball from a more analytical numbers standpoint that necessarily like you as players might not want to get that deep into. But for me, having been pretty much a very mediocre volleyball player, you know, and, and that this is something that it gets me excited. You know, is that I may not be able to play volleyball at a high level, but I can think about like statistically where players are or points wise where you are. And that that is really exciting in an Olympic year, because especially for USA men and women, you guys are all in a dogfight right now that yep. could go any direction. And we've seen it historically. Like I remember, well, Rosie and Jake's journeys you know, being close friends with Sean for a long time, looking at 2008, especially 2012. Well, I guess 2008 was closer, you know, 2012, they were really dominating. But 2008, it came down to the last tournament. And, you know, they're, they're especially you got poor Nick and Furby too in that, in yeah. that 2012. And then basically Furby just retired after that. I mean, it's, it's, it can be that close. I mean, try, I know you know how close it can be um, from, from 16, but but this is the, it, it's that change in the sport. I was just talking to someone the other day, funny thing, one of the older guys who hangs out and plays with us um, here at 16th Street in Hermosa where I live. It, it, he was talking about that transition in 96 when, you know, Sinjin and they all, you know, started building that international tour and going, we're going to put this in the Olympics for the first time. Of course, in, in 92, they did sort of a test, right, with, with some stuff. And then they had the Goodwill Games, I think, with, 
with Carl Henkel and Sinjin playing. And then in 96, we got to have a full Olympic sport with beach volleyball. So how did that change how players approached the game and, and how the sport was marketed and how the sport was seen from a fan perspective? Because I remember, you know, and, and I'm, I'm you know, in my mid forties. So I remember being in high school in the early nineties and just being like, this, this sport's incredible. I would go and watch this party atmosphere where guys, big, strong guys were playing amazing volleyball, but there was that beer drinking, bikini wearing kind of aspect to it. And, and I know that it still has that, but also the, the, the gravitas, the seriousness of the Olympic journey has sort of taken the, the attention of the players and the fans, I think in a positive way, but other people, some of the older guys here at least are hypothesizing that maybe that took away from the sponsorship level because they aren't seeing, like the Bud Lights aren't saying, if I put my beer behind this, it's a big party because it isn't as much anymore. And as a result, the players have gotten a heck of a lot better. And, and much, much more technical and much stronger and, and much quicker because the training is so much more serious than it used to be. So I don't know, there's so many different angles to what yeah. the Olympic journey does with volleyball. I think, I personally think it's positive, but there, there are older players that I'm sure we all bump into on the beach or older fans who may see it in a different way, right? It's, it's funny because like every old school player we have on the podcast is always like the Olympics are the worst thing that's ever happened to the AVP because you know, you have to go to the FIVB, you have to skip AVP events to qualify for the Olympics. So in a way they're right. But I also think in terms of, you know, Sinjin's goal, when he was trying to put volleyball into the Olympics, it wasn't to make the AVP bigger. It was to grow the game as much as he could. Right. So, and in that way it, it's worked tremendously. I mean, the FIVB is huge and you got oh, yeah. teams from Norway and me and Adam signed up for the Doha one star. And uh, there are, the main draw is five teams from Qatar, two teams from Oman, one from Sweden, like Oman has two teams in the main draw, you know, <laughs> know and so right? like Oman, like they're not going to field yeah. a team, team, but you only need two right. players. So like the right. FIVB, it's taken beach volleyball to a level in terms of global participation to a level that the AVP could have never reached, even though it might've hurt the AVP's bottom line. Sinjin's goal was like, this game is too big to keep to ourselves. Let's spread it. And it's worked. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 huge yeah. around the world. it's worked well. And, and I've gone to about it, it, since I started going to international tournaments, just out, out of interest, maybe, well, I went to one in 2003. That doesn't really count. Rosie and Larry Witt and I went <laughs> down to just, it, it was like, there was a, so like my whole life I've been, I've known that I love watching volleyball since I was about 16. And I've just been trying ways to sneak in and watch more amazing volleyball. So at one point I'd be like, oh, you guys are going to a country quota in Brazil. This was, you know, Larry Witt and, and Sean Rosenthal in, in 2003 when they were starting to be like a good young team. And, and I said, do you mind if I come along and just sort of help you guys warm up and I'll do anything, like, just let me be there with you. And so they're like, sure. So we, we flew down there and the, in those days, country quotas were on site as they were most of the time until recently, right? So you fly down there and they play Furby and Casey in the first round and lose in two. And, and then, but we booked our tickets for the whole tournament. So we figured, okay, let's just hang out. We were staying in this hostel right by the beach in Salvador in Bahia in Brazil. And it was really beautiful area, just pristine, warm. So we were watching all these amazing teams. And at that time, you know, it was like Stein Metzger was playing with Dax. And I think it was like um, Fenoy was playing with Kevin Wong. 
and and so some good like historical AVP teams. But then in the World Tour, you had Harley and you had like Baracelli Conde from Argentina who were very strong. They may have won that tournament, so I remember it. But but just so so that start for me, just I realized with the international game, like you were saying, Travis, it changed like everything for me. Because I'd gone to ADP tournaments, they're amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a great product. The players are passionate. They really bring it in the ADP in terms of the fan appeal because they play to the crowd, which I love. Whereas international is different. They aren't necessarily as much of that, but the quality of play is just it's insane. Right now, I just I watch international qualifiers and I go, most of these teams on a given day could probably compete on Sunday in an AVP. And they're in the international qualifier, you know, and it's, it's phenomenal. And, and what you said about spreading the game around the world, I think, you know, smaller countries like Latvia, you know, this is their opportunity to get an Olympic medal, which they did, right? And so in, in 2012, you have this sort of unknown Latvian team getting a bronze medal with Clavins and, and, and Janis Smedens. And it's just that whole country. I mean, that Latvian beach volleyball contingent are basically the superstars of their country now. Like Alex Samoylov is on like the front cover of magazines and like, it's unbelievable because that's their sport that they know that they can get an Olympic medal in. So, and, and you think about these countries, these are not necessarily, you know, Australia, Brazil, USA, beach destinations around the world. These are places where they maybe were former indoor players or Maybe there's some connection, some, um, you know, connection to a family member. In, in the case of, of Alex, of course, his dad sort of runs that whole group, right? In the case of Norway, I think it's the parents of Christian and Anders who were great players themselves. So you see this sort of transition of these European nations sort of taking over, right? It's, it's been, it's, it, I guess it's not shocking if you look at the time and effort they put into it. And the, the dedication to their craft and, and what resources their countries put behind them, right? It's not that right. shocking, but but at the same time, we Brazil and us, we've always kind of owned volleyball. So it's it's interesting to see that shaken up, right? I mean, especially for you guys, I'm sure. Yeah, I would I would love to see like a like a Ryder Cup style thing where you get like Brazil, South America versus Europe versus North America. I think that would be such a cool competition because like, you know, if you combine the U S and maybe like the top two teams from Canada, like we could compete with the top five teams from Europe and the top and Brazil. I mean, they could have probably 10 teams compete at that level. Yeah. <laughs> right. You got Brazil. I don't know if Argentina has much more Chile, yeah. the Chilean guys could join. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you could, I mean, it's weird how you're, Europe's gotten so strong. I mean, just, you know, and, and the Brazilians are right there and we're right there, but we're sort of trying to figure out, at least on the men's side, where the younger players are going to come from. Although, isn't there, there was just something about a, an indoor Stanford setter, tall guy, right? Yeah, he so be- he moved into my old apartment. So, dude. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we had this like beach volleyball circle of life. So Stafford moved out of his place on 4th Street in Hermosa. So then he was like, hey, man, uh, moving out if you want it. The rent's been controlled for seven years. So we're wow. like, yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. We'll move in. So as soon as Stafford left, we moved in. And then James Shaw called me and was like, hey, heard you guys are moving. Can I take your room? So I wow. said, sure. So James Shaw and try. I don't I don't think you've met him, but he's uh, like uh-huh. 6'10 indoor setter from Stanford, played in oh. Italy overseas, I think. Wow. Like monster man and uh, going to be ridiculous pretty soon. Wow. He's, and he wants to play beach. Yeah, he's making the transition. He, how he's how like, old Travis? About 24, 
ish 25 I think maybe him and all right so him and andy benish are like the exact same so it's just okay. like huge about the same age similar athleticism except james is probably a little less raw than andy was when he first came out wow that's something um so he's if he puts in the work like he'll be a he'll be ready to go yeah. <laughs> he'll be good well, and and that's the key right is that i think it's interesting when you talk about putting in the work and our our players all train very diligently i i remember the first time i so you know I, brazil 2003 rosie and larry and i go down whatever we come back we had a great time and then 2011 um i got to world champs in rome uh because amy my wife is like you know what you love volleyball why don't we go travel and see some volleyball tournaments and i was like wow this is obviously a keeper um and, <laughs> and, and i'm like thank you honey yes let's do this and um so we, we we fly into barcelona we rent a car we drive to rome from barcelona and, and the thing amy always loves to tell me about that trip is when we got to world championships in rome there's no parking in Rome. It's basically impossible. We had rented this car for the week, but what the heck are we supposed to do? So we drive into the FIVB tournament site. We drive into where all the officials and players and everything park for the week. And the guy doesn't speak English. He just looks at us kind of funny. And Amy just points and goes, he's a player. And then, oh, okay, just park over here. And so we just park our car for the week in the FIV tournament site and just go find our Airbnb and come back and watch tournament for the week. Well, you see these great players, Brazil and all over the world, so I'm thinking to myself, you know, a little about how they train and what they do. So I was watching some of the Brazilians train about a few months, about six months after that, I was in Brazil, just Amy, I decided to go to Rio just for no good reason. And there was a guy named Tikal, actually, maybe you've heard of Tikal. Tikal is a coach. He used to coach players here. Okay. Um, probably 2005 to 2010 or 12 or so he was coaching here. He was a good, good Brazilian player, but he was like many of them. They came up here to coach for a while. And then he went back and he's been hired by a number of Now he's coaching the girls from Colombia. So, but they're at some training camp in Europe or something. So in any event, um, we go to visit him and I'm watching the Brazilians train and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how they do it. Like Pedro's training with Marcio that, that winter, because they were thinking about playing together. They train three hours in the morning, go get some food, lift, come back, train three hours in the afternoon. Apparently there's a nap in there somewhere from what I was told, but it's like, and they do that six days a week in the heat on Rio where I was sitting in a chair watching them sweating profusely just from like <laughs> nothing. Right. So I think there's, and then, so what, I mean, that seems amazing in terms of building players, you know, capability, but I think there's a burnout element to the Brazilian like system as well, because you see like players like Pedro Cunha, who was a great player, retire before he hits 30 because his body falls apart and he has three surgeries, right? right? So there's this interesting question I always think about to myself is the Europeans, the Brazilians, some of these foreign players stress like incredibly intense practice schedules, but most of their players are very young. And our players are more veteran typically, right? And have a lot more experience, but also, you know, know how to manage their bodies better. So they only need very specific training. And it's kind of like watching Casey Patterson train, you know, with Chase again right now, which I'm kind of excited about because, you know, obviously Chase is one of my buddies. And um, I was really stoked. And Casey's very specific, right? He's like, I'm 40. I know exactly what I need to get in shape to play. I don't need to go train five hours a day every day, right? That, that would just kill him. Yeah. So, so it's, I think, I think that's the interesting part about our system and how successful the Americans have been over the years. You know, it, 
with the, I, I would say with the exception, 2019 was kind of an aberration. Our, our guys, all of you guys didn't necessarily medal as often as, as we as fans were looking forward to. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen again. I just think it was just a tough year because when Norway is taking over, it doesn't leave a lot of room for other people, right? Um, I don't know what you think about that, Try. Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's a, one of the first years where obviously Phil is usually the one getting on the podium multiple times throughout the year. Um, I mean, I think people would be surprised if you told them if you, you know, when Jake and Taylor first partnered up that it would take them that long to get a medal, just a medal yeah. on the world tour. Um, and then, yeah, me and Trev, I mean, we kind of knew it was going to be a progression because we are split blocking for the first time and it was going to take a little bit of time, but and it was we your first our, season our back. I mean, it was really your yeah. first season back. So, I mean, I, yeah. I think you guys progressed really well. Yeah, you're right. Phil had one silver at Doha the whole yeah. year. One podium. That's that's unheard of. I don't think I can remember a season Phil didn't have at least one win. And that's not to say he's any different than he's ever been. It's just I think the, the level of volleyball is getting so yeah. strong worldwide. The size and the quickness, it's a lot like point guards in basketball, right? I mean, Ben Simmons at 6'10 is gnarly. But like, when was there ever a six ten point guard when we were younger, or at least in, in when I was younger? You know, well, that was so, like a that was like a Magic Johnson at six eight, and he was like a freak and dominating. <laughs> right, that was him. That was the one. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I forgot. I block him out because I come from Boston. But yeah, I get it. That's, but, yeah, that's a yeah. joke. That's a joke. Right? <laughs> I don't want to think about my poor Larry Legend getting beat down in eighty seven, <laughs> and, and then you know his back was gone. And anyway, but yeah, try. That's the thing. And so as we move forward as a federation. And I, I think good things are happening in USA Volleyball. You know, the monthly stipend for players, the travel stipends, all this stuff helps those top three or four teams, right, compete. I think, you know, if we can see more events and proliferation of things for the next level of players, that will certainly help too. And without the college game for men on the beach side, obviously, that's going to make it harder to develop young, young yeah. male players. Yeah, I feel like we... I mean, at least the position I'm in, I've put in my, what, seven years now, six, seven years now. Wow. Uh, only 31, but like the way that it's progressed is like there hasn't really been many people behind my age that have proven that they can win. Uh, and Are you really that old? I'm 31. Oh my God. I thought, I didn't, can't believe it. Actually. I'm a vet. I'm a vet. <laughs> old vet. Trevor's 31 as well. I think uh -huh. I'm 31. <laughs> Uh, so Taylor's, Taylor just turned 29, right? 29, yeah, yeah. He just so turned Taylor's 29. the young gun. He's the, the only youngest. one that's proven that he can win medals behind us, and then like the the old I guess Theo, with Theo and Came and them would be. Yeah, they're definitely contenders. Yep. Um, but um, yeah, other than the guys who are potentially retiring, you know, it's going to be a whole mm -hmm. different landscape, and we're going to have to carry that torch. And I mean. For the U.S., it's it's not an option to not bring in any medals in a year, you know. Right. Uh, right. So we need to. That's that's our goal is to be those guys for the U.S. Yeah. Because right. even when you think about it, I mean, you mentioned Theo and Came. They're both older than you too. And yeah. when you think about, because last week someone asked what the 2024 partnerships might look like 
And really the only people who are in that discussion are also older than you, like <laughs> Chase, you know, Chase yeah. Bunger. Right. You know? Right. Chase is 32. He'll be 33 in June but or then, something, right? What's, yeah. what's funny five is years on him. our women are the complete opposite. All right. our right. talent, except for April and Alex, is really young. Like Kelly Kalinske is probably the next, will be the next oldest going into Paris. And she's what, like 27, 28? So yeah. <laughs> like wow. she's the veteran of the women and she would be like the baby of the men. So our women's pipeline is like, we're good. Um, it's amazing. It's incredible yeah. how good our women are and consistently across those top four teams, they can all medal in, in FIVB full field events at no, with no issue at all. And they're strong. Of course, Carrie is, the, is kind of a wild card because she is a bit older. This is yeah. definitely her last run, I would assume, but I don't know for sure. Um, you never know, like with Carrie, she might just decide that she can just keep going because she hasn't really slowed down at all. I, I was out at a few of those China events a couple of years ago because I'm one of those weird people who actually enjoys China. I might be <laughs> the only person in the world who likes going to China, I think. First person on this I, podcast I, to say so. <laughs> I, I found a couple of interesting things. And first of all, I'm kind of an unusual guy to start with because I don't eat meat. So that makes it really hard to be in a place like China. But apparently our players can't oh. eat the meat there anyway. Right. so i guess it's not so weird but um i found a lot of interesting stuff when we were there the last time number one the bullet trains are insane you know n number two that there's like amazing buddhist temples and things of that nature like there's cultural stuff that you can kind of dive into if if you're not playing and training like if you're just a fan like me and and so getting out there i was watching brooke and and carrie the last time and it was like holy moly like uh carrie is insane like she's blocking, hitting on two, like serving tough, like passing more than half the court. Like, and she's she's got to be over forty, like right forty three or think. something. Yeah. So, I mean, how where does she slow down? Does she? I mean, it's like the Jake Gibb story to me. Like Jake Gibb to me, and I've watched him since. You know, he played with Mike Daniel in qualifiers, and then he was playing with Adam Jewell when he first kind of, and I don't know if you guys ever met Adam Jewell. Does that name, like, ring a bell to either of you guys? Yeah, he won yeah, Boston I, with Jake. I heard right? it a lot. Yeah, but, dude, he had the best ooh after he hit the ball of anyone. He had the best ooh after he hit the ball. <laughs> Nobody could bounce higher than him, and he had the best like celebration noise that anyone's ever heard. So he was a he was a baseball pitcher from South High School in Torrance, and then he played volleyball on the beach, and then he played um, volleyball at El Camino. But his arm was insane. But he was one of those guys that just you know, oh okay, this Jake Gibb guy looks good. Let's play for a year. And they were, and he, that was the only win I think Adam had. And then Jake jumps into Stein Metzger, and then he jumps into Rosie. It's an interesting progression watching a guy like Jake because to me today, he's better than he was then. You know, he was the MVP of the ADP in 2005. He looks better, much better now. And he'll tell you that too. He, he says his game is much sharper. And I think fitness-wise, he's better at 43. So that's the most amazing that's thing about, yeah, right? I mean, try, he just, well, so don't worry about your age. Just do, just could do what you can control. Right. So it, it doesn't matter. I mean, there'll come a day when things break down physically, depending on your history. Right. So guys who played a lot more indoors are probably going to break down quicker. I mean, I know, you know, there's pain in our bodies from whatever we've done. But for guys like Jake, for guys like I, Phil could keep going for for sure. I mean, 
There's no question, right? Uh, but yeah. guys like that have had such a long journey. I think they've decided family, we've done this, we've accomplished, we want one more run and then it's time to hang it up. And I, I respect that as well um, because that's that's what they're, you know, in their heart is, is what they want to do. So, but you can see, I watched Jake get practice out here. Like, it's just, dude, he reaches so high. He just, his technique is so clean. The way his hand and arm angles work on attack is precise to, he sees the defense and he, you know, he knows how to move the ball around. I mean, it's, it's magic watching him play. And he's, it's weird because I said to Richie the other day, or something, was it Richie or someone else who stand next to me? I go, is he really only six, seven? <laughs> like, right? Like who the, Jacob looks way bigger when he's playing than six, seven. Cause there's other guys who are six, seven who don't seem as big as Jake when they're blocking and hitting. Right. Like that's something yeah. I was thinking about. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. Yeah, go ahead. I wonder what, like how we would think about Jake Gibbs name today. If Phil wasn't around all those years, because Jake's been the most consistent, like no one's even really touched. I've been trying very hard. But no one's really like taken his spot as the second best blocker in the U.S. Uh, since I've been wa watching this sport, and and you know it's funny that you say earlier that he's better now the last few years. Like I don't have that perspective. I never played. I watched maybe a little bit back then. Jake wasn't the guy I watched. Um, I watched the Hawaiian guys and I like Lambo. Yeah. Oh, dude. Court, you don't know. Lambo was one of the That's tragic, why I like tragic. Right. Lambo was so incredible. It, it, he was fit. So, okay. So I, one of my favorite times of volleyball to think about other than coming in and learning the sport little as a young fan, you know, in the nineties, you have this talent level, right? With Karch and Kent and Jose, your coach, Jose Loyola was a freak of nature. <laughs> it, it, I watched, I, I was standing at the Manhattan Open in 95. So here I am, I'm, a, I'm, I'm out of high school now. I'm in my first year in college. And uh, my buddy from high school was Kent Steffes' first cousin. So he goes, let's go out and stay with Kent's parents for a week and we'll go watch the Manhattan Open. Whatever. So I come out and I'm watching Jose warm up at the Manhattan Open in 95. And he's hitting balls that are bouncing sideways up the whole grandstand. Like he doesn't, it's not like he hit it to the end line and it bounced up the deep way. He hit from the right side sideways in warmups and it would go like halfway up the grandstand sideways. It was like, you don't like it's, I know guys today are, they're very physical, but guys back then were all about bouncing in warmups. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, exactly. it was like, you know, the guys don't practice that anymore. It's probably a good thing because it's not necessarily that useful for your game, but like guys <laughs> like Rosie and Loyola and guys back then, they were guys that were just crushing balls. It ridiculous. Anyway, so getting back to like moving on to that next zone. Right. So that's like one time period that I think is really iconic. 96 in that era was just the peak of the ADP from the old days, right? You have the Olympics and everything. Then you get to this 2004, five, six, right? Now that's kind of the, the growth and the strength of that next ADP. And there was a moment when Lambo, right? Your, your guy, Mike Lambert from Hawaii, from Punahou, Stanford, right? All that. And Phil was an up and coming young blocker who had won his first tournament with Nick in Austin, right? And he had third in Hermosa and everyone was kind of talking about it. And then you had Jake who had just been the MVP 
And, and so these guys are trying to figure out who they're going to play with because all of them, you know, Lambo playing with Karch and Karch was getting older, right? Jake was playing with Stein, but he was thinking there was bigger things in short him, although Stein was incredible. So it's kind of a weird thing there. Oh, because Stein went with Lambert, right? That's the whole thing. It was kind of like Lambert was the king of that era. Like everyone saw him as the best blocker, better than Phil, better than Jake, even though Jake was the MVP. So that's what I'm saying is, you know, your guy Lambo was, and he had the injuries afterwards that ended his, basically ended his career. And it was a shame because he was the flying Hawaiian, right? I mean, you know, uh, that guy was a, a monster. So, and, and so the, how that all goes down though, right? How that all goes down is the most interesting to me about how the sport works because it's all about partnerships and, and how they can change and how that can affect the future of the sport, you know, because, Todd Rogers getting Phil, there's a very, um, maybe you guys know the story, maybe you don't about how Phil asked Rosie what he was doing in 2005, the next year, before no. Todd asked him to play. You guys haven't heard this? Well, I mean, I try to keep the stories not to be too secret, giving away too many secrets I'm not supposed <laughs> to talk about, but R Rosie and I have been tight for a long time, so I guess he won't mind me sharing this one, and, and I'm sure okay. he would. You would say, okay, so essentially before in Chicago that year, so there was a King of the Beach after at the end of the season. Before that was Chicago, which is always on Labor Day, right? And and Phil and Nick were playing, and, and Rosie was playing Larry Witt still, and Jake was playing with Stein, and, and Lambeau was playing with Karch. And you had Phil asking Rosie, hey, what are you thinking about doing next year? You thought about who you're getting a partner. And Rosie tells him, I'm waiting to see what Lambeau's going to do. That, that's kind of how that went down because all the best defenders were asking Lambo, what are you doing next year? And then once he picked Stein, then everyone else would kind of, right, would kind of go to the next blocker and yeah. say, okay, you know, what are you doing next year? And so it's funny because once Stein and Lambo committed, okay, Jake, who was the MVP, approached Rosie after they had their King of the Beach, uh, you know, the Rosie line, mm -hmm. which is obviously one of the most famous moments. I was standing right under the play. So where the camera angles, I'm right behind that. And I was sleeping in my car <laughs> because, you know, that's what we used to do back then. We just drive tournaments and you don't have any money. So you just slept in your car or whatever. <laughs> or you found a room, someone had an extra bed or a floor spot or whatever. And, and I remember watching that and just being like, wow, this is, Sean's really emerged. Because it's, it's funny, I, I'm in Hermosa in 97, right? When my parents moved here. My dad was from Manhattan Beach and, and when he grew up here and he went to Miracosta, and he used to tell me about the, the courts at Marine Street when he was a kid in the 50s and all this cool stuff. Like you'd give the lifeguard the quarter and they'd give you the ball for the day and he'd give it back at the end <laughs> of the day and you'd get your quarter back. There was only two courts at Marine in the 50s, he was saying. But anyway, so they move out here to get back here. And, and I kind of told them when I graduated college, I'm going to California. And they said, okay, we'll move there. So I'm at A Street and I meet Rosie, 97, in that summer. And I just figured this guy is ridiculous. I'm just going to drive around and watch him play in AAA tournaments. Cause there's like, what do you have to do on a weekend? You know, you're either going to play some volleyball or you're going to watch some volleyball. But at that point it was like, I'm seeing something like Rosie at 18 years old was the craziest thing you've ever seen because his quads were like they exactly as big as they are today, <laughs> but, he, but he weighed like 170 pounds. Right. So, you can only imagine a 6'4", 170-pound guy with quads like the size of, like, you know, a, a side of a, a ham, right? <laughs> like his, his gigantic, like, ham hawk legs 
propelling his, his very skinny upper body, like 40 plus inches in the air. And he, he levitated, you know, and just did crazy stuff. So watching Rosie, all those early days, I, I remember driving to Dana Point, Corona Del Mar. I drove Newport and watched him play. I drove to Zuma and watched him play, Zuma up in Malibu. You know, these did AAAs all up and down the court. I'm sure they still do all up and down the coast. Um, and he was playing with this guy named Brandon Smeltzer. And, and like just after Dale Smith, who was kind of the older guy that taught Rosie how to play volleyball, had kind of relinquished that, okay, you need to go find a better partner because you've done as, you've gone as far as I can take you. And, and so Brandon had played for a while. And then it was just interesting getting to that point where, you know, he's now in 2005 with the Vegas line, one of the, basically one of the best defenders in the country, right? So in that period of time, it was just, it was, it was amazing to watch his, his ascension, you know, it was. Yeah. It's fun to see him back out too. Healthy with the yeah. shoulders playing again. Oh dude, him and Avery look like they're maybe going to give it a try. I think, I mean, that's, I so. that's the latest. Yeah. I, funny I mean, Avery can't yeah. seem to make up his mind. He's like, all right, I'm transitioning. I'm defending playing right side. <laughs> and then Rose right. like, and Avery's like, all right, blocking and I'm playing left side. Again, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, he could he could throw Rosie either way, whatever he feels more yeah. comfortable with, right? Well, well, you guys remember when Rosie and Phil first got together in 2013, right? I mean, this is now within our more recent memory. So um, it was it was the most interesting part about that was with Mike Dodd coaching them, and through that first winter when they decided to play together, who was going to play what side? Both had only played left. So the first thing they said was, Phil, you're the best player in the world. Basically, you're going to play the right. Yeah. And let's see how that goes. And it was a couple of interesting things happened. First of all, Phil's ridiculous wherever you put. Him. I mean, so they were good. Yeah. You know, they won events. They, they won their first event together. And I was there in, in, uh, in Fuzhou in China. And it was just, that was the first time I went to China. I was just like, okay, Phil and Rosie are playing together. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to go watch a couple of their tournaments, right? The first one, because I have to see what this is going to look like. And um and they win that. And funny thing, Jake and Casey win the Grand Slam in Shanghai the next week. Yeah. And, and Rosie ends up getting a ninth in that and losing a close match to Ricardo and Alvaro, right, to get knocked out. You remember, try how good Alvaro is. I mean, oh, my, my God. Yeah. Rosie six-packed him. I thought he got knocked out. Oh, that was in that. Rosie yeah, that was in that tournament. Bro. And he froze and his hands went like this and he fell straight to his back. I was like, oh, Rosie killed someone. <laughs> that was in that tournament. Like, that, that, was, like that. that was, yeah. You gotta watch that, that. That's a good highlight. It's on YouTube, I think, still. So anyone who wants to check yeah. that out, go find that. I think that was the Peugeot and not the Shanghai. But yeah, that was one of those two tournaments. But it's, yeah, USA came out of the gate that year and you and Johnny were playing together, right? So, or was that, no, you didn't start till 2014 or did you start in 2013? No, what year was that? I don't even remember. So Shanghai, we... Were you guys out there for that one in 2013 or do you start in 2014 together? I don't oh, sorry. see... I started the year after. I was on... Yeah, AD you were in 2014. Yeah, yeah. Because you were with like Jeff Carlson or maybe like yeah. other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was just trying. You were, still get, you were still getting ready, but dude, Johnny picking you up and just because... Here's the thing, right? I think a guy like John Hyden knows what it takes to win. And he sees the Alec U with all the pieces in place. And he says, this is, we can win. And you did. And you guys were amazing together. And it's, it's one of those like things, like only two teams get to go to the Olympics from the USA, right? It's just one of those things, right? I'm sure you still, this is yeah. it though. This year's your redemption. Cause I, 
I'm all in for Monster Hydro and trying Trevor. I love you guys. <laughs> I'm excited. And Jose, your coach, I think this is going to be a great journey. Um, yeah, just just thinking about all this all this international volleyball stuff and and how you know we can make and you guys saw that article about the investment last night, right? Yeah, I saw that. Insane. You Travis, you know what we're talking about? No. Someone I I, I forget the name of the company. What was it? Was it um, was it a VC, CVC or some some company just invested three hundred million dollars in the FIBB? Whoa, I work for them now, so maybe I'll have to ask ah, them about race. race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so try yeah, so my, that, my is they, that they work with Formula One, right? And yeah. rugby yeah. and like yeah. they, they've already yeah. gone in, into those sports and they've seen like the I only read one article, but they've seen the potential of volleyball. They look at the numbers and how it's one of the biggest sports in the world in terms of the amount of people playing. It's the fourth uh, volleyball. It's, yeah, it's the fourth highest participated sport in the world. And, and so th they see that and they say, hey, we can make a relatively modest investment for comparatively with Formula One or rugby or whatever and have a big effect on the sport. And, and I know that's primarily an indoor volleyball investment, but I know the way the FIB works, that'll trickle down into beach for sure, you know, and affect the beach game as well. And especially with the launch, hopefully, of that new system next year, if that can really get moving and this can be the maybe some of the catalyst for that so yeah, yeah. it needs exciting no it's yeah it is exciting it is it's it's like there's the sport is for those fans like me who are so into it i can't understand why people don't all love watching volleyball right because to me the athleticness the quickness the agility the hand-eye coordination the the techniques it's uh, it's a high, incredibly high level sport in terms of what you need to do to be good at it. And you're doing it in sand, right? So that's the, and, and so that brings a couple different things. It brings, you know, the, you can see the incredibly um, strong and toned men athletes and the incredibly strong and fit female athletes. And that, you know, the beauty of sport and the beauty of, of muscular bodies comes out. And, and I'm not trying to be weird or anything, but, you know, as fans, you want to put something on TV that's marketable. And the men and the women who play volleyball, I think, are all very marketable as athletes. Yeah. You know, and it's not like Formula One where you're just seeing a car with a helmet sticking out of it, which still is a huge sport worldwide. But, but I think, and then you have the fact that a lot of people do play volleyball. So the idea is that I know indoors does very well and there's plenty of money there. You know, is it, does it have something to do with the fact that not as many people are familiar with the beach game that why it's harder to get the beach game to resonate? You know, that's what I'm wondering. I think, I think that would be probably the biggest thing because like you can play volleyball indoors anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. Right. And most people do in gym class or whatever. Like when you watch it on TV, you understand how difficult it can be or you understand what it's like to jump off indoors but my brothers for example like we never played beach volleyball growing up so my older brother had no idea how hard it was to jump on sand until we went out to myrtle beach he's like let's pepper and so we were pepper and he's like it's so hard to move and he like didn't he like you can understand it in on a conceptual level it's harder to move in sand but until you go to jump you can't grasp how hard it is to jump out especially deep sand oh. that like i feel like a lot of times people watching on tv who've never played can't fathom how difficult it is to do what these guys are doing 
Yeah, um, it's incredibly difficult. I, I played indoors for club at Brown, right, when I was there. And I remember coming out here for the summer when my parents had moved here and been like, oh, I'm going to play some beach in Hermosa with basically the deepest sand in the world that I didn't know about yet. And I just remember like just struggling through that first month of trying to like figure out how to get my footwork going and not trying to broad jump to hit a ball and all this stuff. And then what's interesting is, and I'm sure Travis, cause you played a probably a lot of indoors. You, did you play at Maryland? I played basketball. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. I thought for some reason, I thought you must've played volleyball. Okay. No. never mind. But um, because Maryland had a good club program for volleyball um, in any event, um, no. <laughs> they, they were like, there was a guy who, who transferred from Maryland to Penn state in 94 or 95, who was a freaking superstar. Um, I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head, but they, Maryland won the club national championships, I think. But um, in any event, so just that transition, that idea of coming from beach to beach. Now, what you said too about deep sand, I think a lot of like casual players like me who don't realize that Hermosa maybe is the deepest and Huntington is much easier to jump out of, right? I know right. you guys know that from Jane or Long Beach. It's like, I got my AAA, the only one time I got it was in Corona del Mar. And, and they have those funny courts that are the wrong way with the metal poles, right? Yeah. And, and that's an easier, a little bit deeper than say a Huntington, but a bit easier than Hermosa. Yep. So I remember the first, like, and I, I got lucky and like Rosie is 2000. He's kind of my boy. And he just goes, Hey, let's play a triple A tournament together. He had just started qualifying <laughs> for AVP tournaments, but he had like a weekend off because AVP only had six events that year. And I go, well, you can't really say no to that. So we go drive down there and the first three swings I hit out of, I just kind of over jumped the ball and hit it out of bounds. I'm like, yep. and then we end up going on a win streak and, and, and doing pretty well, but it's interesting to think about those differences in surface. So like where tries playing in the world tour, there aren't very many real beaches, right? Very few, but that doesn't mean that when you don't go to Stad in that stadium court, it isn't super deep, right? Am I right? It's super deep on that stadium court in Stad, right, Try? Um, yeah, <laughs> I've had one of the toughest matches in my life on that court. <laughs> Tell us a little about it. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh when we played um saxton and shulk in ninth place game or something like that uh and when we went three it was like dead wind altitude and we had i think we had played a match before that too long story short we win it it's like me short serving me and and us short serving ben just going <laughs> back and forth and we're both blocking oh, we win it God. and then turn around and and we have to play the fifth place match against Samoylov Smedens oh in like my God. two hours. Oh my God. I played that match, we lost, and I literally couldn't move that night. Like I, it was before we were, it was IVs were illegal. Oh, wow. I was on IVs, I was sick all night, just like oh I couldn't move. Oh my God. Dude, anyway, those yeah, guys too, those... I can get you. Oh, those those guys, dude, those... Alexander, dude, Smolovs and Smedens are one of my favorite teams, man. They're just... It's just, look at Giannis Smedens. I mean, that guy is just a cannon. Incredible. It's, how did two, how did two guys, I mean, what would you say Alex's real height is? Probably six, three, six, four. Six, four is pretty legit for him. And Giannis yeah. is probably six, two, six, three, right? Yeah. He's That's, listed six, four. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know what okay. his real height is. <laughs> so the point is like, if guys at that size in the last six years can be at the top of the world tour pretty consistently, it's possible. You don't have to be Oleg, right? To win. Dude, I, right? this is like, you're warming my heart. I just watch Smolov <laughs> Spedens and Herrera Gavira and I'm like, I, I can do it. I can do Dude. it. And, and try to remember Zandy Huber playing with Rob Seidel, right? 
We're going to take a quick minute to give a shout out to our sponsors. You guys know the drill. Wilson Volleyball is our number one sponsor. We love them to death, and we would love it if you guys loaded up on some preseason Wilson Volleyballs because guess what? It's February, and we're thinking that there's going to be a season this year. So with that said, beaches are opening back up. It's time to get some more Wilson Volleyballs at 20% off using our discount code SANDCAST-20. All right, so you can get the best beach volleyballs in the game. I think I saw the German Beach Volleyball League using Wilson Volleyballs, so they're infiltrating Europe. All right, the whole world is starting to realize that no one makes a better ball than Wilson. So get a 20% discount using SANDCAST-20 and load up on some new Wilson Volleyballs today. And now, back to the show. Dude, those guys are the coolest guys ever. I love, oh my God. Yeah, go ahead, dude. No, we call them the Hobbit. The Hobbit, Zandy, right? Dude, and he's still at it. He's playing with Dressler in a lot of like one and two stars and local events and still trying to grind it. Yeah. Yeah. But that guy, they were so cool. I would cheer for them because when you see, like, for anyone who's watching the podcast, Sandy Huber is like legit five seven, right? I mean, five eight maybe. And and Rob Seidel yeah. is like six one ish, six two maybe on a good day. And that was a team that in that um, might have been in that opening event in 2013 in Fuzhou, they beat three straight teams that was like huge upsets. They beat, beat Todd Rogers and Avatar. They beat Jake and Casey. And I know they beat one other really good team in a row. Like, it was, like, weird. This 5'7 guy was, like, digging everybody. And the 6'1 guy just soft blocking. Like, he yeah. wouldn't ever get any jetties. He would just soft block anything. And they would just play it up on two. So, like, that's cool that you can be small and compete if you have the skill, right? And yeah. I, I, it kind of gives – because there's – Right, the old school guys are still gonna always harp on what if it was still big court. And I say to that, that the players of today are so freaking good. It would not matter at all. They're bigger, quicker, they jump higher. I mean, I'm not saying that the guys back then weren't amazing, they were, but when Mike Whitmarsh was like six, six and a half and he was the, he was the biggest guy anyone had ever yeah. seen. Right, so Phil, you know, Jake, guys like that, it would, would transition across any era for sure. Right. You know, for sure. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I think the argument, I think, is is kind of stupid across all sports because you grow pretty much to, like, you know how, like, like a fish will grow to the size of its container? Yeah. So, like, athletes will just grow to whatever level of competition, whatever size court they need to go to. Yeah. So, we shrink the court, and what happens? The blockers get freaking huge. Yeah. They don't have to be as mobile <laughs> as Randy was. Right? That's right. That's right. And, and if you make the court bigger, right? I have a also, feeling that Bill is going to be just fine on oh, big court yeah. if he, if that's all he trained on. You know, yeah. were we what saying try? <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. ridiculous. Right. The, the whole thing. Watch, watch the old '80s and '90s matches. Guys have to set each other five feet away from the net. Typically, or that's what they're doing. Right? They're hitting deep corners. That's great and everything. That set doesn't work in today's game. Yeah. Try setting your partner five to seven feet away from that and see how well they side out with that smaller court. And it just won't with the quickness of defenders. It's just, you can't hit the same angles, the same crisp cut shots. Like it's just not going to be as effective. So 
Like it, I think in a way, certain parts of the game have been elevated. The precision of the passing and setting now is beyond my comprehension at times. I, I look at the way guys set, like even like average to bad passes, and it's ridiculous. And I love the drill you guys do out front when there's like a drill where you're like simulating out of system balls and having people set. And it's so incredible to watch just set after set after set, two to three feet off, perfect height. Because players of today train specific skills religiously, right? Players of that era just played games all day. And if it so happened that they wanted to work on a high line shot, maybe they would just hit a whole bunch of high line shots while they're playing games. And, and I, there's arguments to be made for probably either style, but I think today's style certainly is an advancement in the quality, right, of the skill at a faster rate than you would get just playing games. Of course, guys will say, well, back in our day, we played four or five matches every day. And I'm like, so the problem with that is, you know, then what do you, you're waiting for people to pass out and get exhausted, or you're like waiting for the guy who can barely jump anymore to like poke balls over because that it says not as fun for the fans. I don't think at that point, I like today's game better in that way. I think like my favorite. And it's a matter of knowledge too. Go ahead, try. Yeah. Sorry, I'm on a delay here. I can tell. <laughs> a tiny <laughs> My bit. My Wi-Fi is terrible. But I, I was, I was just saying, it's a matter of knowledge as well. Like, you're growing up watching the game be played at a certain level. That then becomes the bar, and the next generation is going to push that bar. Like, there's no way point guards are going to come out anymore and not be able to shoot four feet behind the three-point line because of they grew up watching stuff. Curry. So the bar, you just start from a higher level. Every generation will always be better than the previous, especially if players are sharing their knowledge, which they are with their teammates and sometimes even with everybody. Um, so, I mean, you, yeah, you can't really compare generations. And look at this new thing that's happening with the jump setting two ball, like fake two balls. It's amazing. I, I want to say, did the Polish guys kind of start that? Do you think Ken or Loziak were kind of the first driver? It's, it's not a matter of, like, they definitely didn't start it. Like, okay. I mean, I've been doing that since I was a kid for fun. Nice. You know? But, like, nice. who, started, who started training it mm -hmm. and implementing it into their system to where it was a high, high percentage play? That's the thing. Like, a lot of people will do it, but they're actually – taking the percentages out of their favor most of the time because it's way harder to pass like that and to set like that. Um, but they actually started implementing it into their system to where the fans could see it like this is what they do and like you have to game plan against it. Yeah. So yeah, in that sense, I think so. But So there's your bar raiser, I, right? Like guys weren't, even now, even like Chase Buttinger is starting to practice his fake two jump setting, which is great. You yeah. know, guys like that who... You know, you it wasn't in his repertoire at all for the last several years. But he's thinking, you know what, I need to start working on this. So the, your bar is raising constantly, right, throughout history. Yeah, and yeah. you watch, like, these Swedish kids that are actually one spot ahead of me and Adam in Doha. Um, so they're, their names are Aman and Helvig, and they're like, I think that they're going to be not Anders and Christian level, but they're 18 years old, and they can compete with basically – anyone outside of maybe the top five or six teams in the world wow. and they're they're so they did the european training camp in tenerife spain and they're battling with like brower musin adrian and enrico 
Smolov, Smedens, and all those guys, and they're running this insane option attack offense where the left sider will pass, so the right sider is a righty, and he'll go up, and then he'll side jump set it like that to a shoot set to the other pin, and now they're running the cut sets that Adrian's been doing. Oh, yeah. And it, it's crazy. So I think if if you're a beach volleyball fan, like those two kids are two names that you should be watching because they're, they're fun, and they're just like these really – happy dudes and they they had a terrible draw in the china tournament that i saw them play they drew this like russian team that cut third oh. <laughs> i think it was like igor Velichko who was in the call oh yeah that guy's nasty like, nasty yeah, but yeah that's um, nasty you so you can see like this young generation and for the americans like miles partain doing all the exact oh, same things God, yeah and getting funky so he's like, he's gonna be i mean it's, it's really interesting like that his technique it, it's it's like okay so look at volleyball players from 20 or 30 years ago they started playing volleyball maybe when they were 14 or something at 16 but here in hermosa I, there's a girl who plays here who i'm really good friends with her parents and aaron um was was peppering with her mom at eight and they had a contest how many times can we bump back and forth and she did a thousand without an error at eight and so i'm thinking in my head that a lot of it too has to do with kids at a younger age being like you know what? i love volleyball i'm going to start playing volleyball and that muscle memory develops so much better and and as long as you love it and you're not getting burned out you know like some indoor players would occasionally get burned out because the practices can be pretty intense right but as long as you love it and you're getting into it that earlier like these guys from sweden have probably just been playing for 10 years already or whatever yeah. it is so they have the technique of some of our 25 year olds because they're ahead by that that and they've been training in the european you know system where they pull kids out of regular school and put them in sport academies yeah i think is is really sweet if the kids are into it that's perfect you know so i'm, I'm psyched travis god i'm kind of bummed that i'm not going to this one star to watch you play buddy dude i'm wondering oh i was like man i should have gotten at a coaching pass I, oh dude i would have been <laughs> i would have been all over it because it would but they're still doing the whole bubble thing and everything which means you can get in as a coach yeah yeah but that's going to be interesting this year to see how that all plays out and like I, it, I I think in Qatar it'll work well. It sounds like Brazil Itapema try is going to happen, right? But doesn't look Brazil's like they've been doing bubble tournaments in their Brazil tour with no fans. It's probably going to be the same, huh? Yeah, yeah. So something like that. I, yeah. I heard I was talking uh, to Pompilio. Go ahead, try. Sorry, sorry for my delay. <laughs> You're good. You're good, dude. Well, no, I mean, yeah, I think Qatar is for sure going to be the easiest event to pull off just because the logistics, there's not that many people there anyway. Uh, and they can really like, mont I mean, they can close the streets if they're there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that's probably the best place for us to play after that. I'm not sure. Um, which is why I kind of wanted to hear from Ed, like, I want to hear you break down the Olympic positions in terms of points, right? Yeah, now. yeah, sure. I, don't know if you have the exact yeah, no, I do, I do. I, I got them in, in <laughs> my head as well, so we'll be fine. Um, yeah. So here's here's the thing. I, I was doing this analysis last week just because I think I bumped into you on the beach and I made some kind of um, false statement about you having five finishes you could replace easily, and and I realized that you know you only get those twelve, right? And then there's a certain number that count at, you know, out 12 out of the last couple of years. And then what you want to do is look at opportunities for improvement. 
So, you know, with, with you guys, and I'll just glance at the spreadsheet just so I get all the numbers right, but with you guys at, at 63.60, okay, with, with Jake and Taylor at 66.80 and with Phil and Nick at 54.80, those numbers probably mean nothing to anyone listening. But just thinking about it overall, um, you guys have three finishes that could be replaced by a ninth and a four-star, meaning that if you at least get a ninth, you improve your position. Now, what's ironic about where things are, that, that um, Hamburg finish for you guys, where you got 1,120 points, is huge, by the way, as I'm sure you know, right? That fourth at World Champs means everything to you and Trevor right now because it's, it's, it's holding you up, right, in the spot you're in. And so what you now have to do is say, if we can just, like, go to Doha and, and get a fifth, let's say, which would be great. And as well within your capability, probably even doing better than that. But let's just use that as an example. You would gain 160 team points, right? Because each division in a four-star is 80 points from spacing, right? So first is 800, second is 720, 640, 560, 480, 400, right? It works its way down. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, ninth. It's interesting because single elimination in FIB, it's much different. For the fans who um, watch ABP, you know we do double elimination tournaments. But internationally, they do a pool, a modified pool play plus a single elimination bracket. So there's more teams. There's eight teams tied for ninth, four teams tied for fifth, right? Then they get a team in fourth, third, second, and first. And that's where the really big points come out. But Phil and Nick, the way it stands right now, if there was only one tournament, let's say only Doha happened. They have one empty slot, but they're behind you guys by enough, and if it's, it's 520, that they would need at least a fourth to surpass you. But even then, a fourth with you getting a ninth, you still are ahead, right? If they get a third, you would need a fifth, right? If they get a second, you would need a fourth. So you can kind of do the math based on the delta, what we call um, delta, which means difference in, in, in algebraic terminology. Um, you can do that. I, sorry, my, my physics background keeps kind of making its way into my brain. But um, so that's interesting. Now you say, okay, why haven't I mentioned Jake and Taylor at all yet? They, they have the highest average point finish right now. And they have two replaceable finishes. So I'm just gonna sort of go through this in a little more detail. Um, try and Trevor, uh, Rome, you know, five-star, obviously we don't um, wanna talk about. Um, and Stad, Stad wasn't great for you guys. And, and weirdly enough, Warsaw wasn't great for you guys. So, but, but that's still okay because, you know, you have a chance to improve those finishes still, which is why it was important for you guys to go to everything you could go to in 2019. And, and I'm not in charge of anybody or anything, but it definitely hurt Nick and Phil to miss some tournaments, right? For a few different reasons. I mean, you think, you know, everyone thought 2020 was going to have that full complement of tournaments leading up to the Olympics, but it didn't. So now they're stuck with not knowing how many tournaments are left still having to fill that one slot. They, by the way, also had a bad Warsaw in 2019. They had a really bad Espino and Shaman. They had two 25ths in four stars, which is like for Phil and Nick, I don't think Phil, Phil's almost never had a 25th in his career, by the way. And we were talking about how last year was a tough year for USA. For Phil to get a 25th is almost like, it's like, it must be some, I must be dreaming, right? I mean, it's like, Come on, Phil got, but so that's where this conversation starts to change as more tournaments occur. 
Because if there's three turnovers, let's say, now Phil and Nick get one freebie and they're placed two 25ths. Now the pressure's really on you guys and Jake and Taylor either way, because you have three sort of reasonably easy to replace tournaments. Jake and Taylor only have two, you know, and, and it's funny because they went out to a three-star and got a fifth, which you think, oh, that sounds pretty good. But that's the same points as a, a essentially as a 17th and a four-star. So, so you're, you know, you're, you're kind of, you think I'm going to go to a three-star, like try and Trevor and I'm going to win it because you guys did. And that was helpful. But when they didn't, when they end up with a fifth, it actually could end up being painful for them. So at the end of the day, I think just playing every tournament is always a good thing. But now that we kind of know where everyone's at, it's going to be a dogfight, man. I mean, it's just gnarly. Like to think about if there's at three tournaments, right, then you just have to focus on each match as if it's the last one you're ever going to play, yeah. right? Because any little letdown in a match where that slips you in could, you know, it's kind of what happens, what happened to Furby and, and in, in that old race, you know, how Rosie and Jake got into, into that first one. So anyway, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that it's all three of you have a pretty fair chance to get in just depending on performance, right? And, and we'll see what happens. Um, I don't think any other countries in this situation, by the way, um, you know, because Brazilians, Alvaro and Alisson and, and Evandro Bruno look like they're pretty, pretty much yeah. in, right? Andre and George don't really have much. Well, Brazil, Brazil does yeah. their thing differently. So they're, That's right. they're, not, they're, they're, they already picked him, right? Yeah, they picked him. Yeah, they they so, already picked those guys. So yeah. Okay. All those Brazilian teams have to do now is stay in the top 16 in the world, maybe top yeah. 24. And they're That's good. Right. So Brazilian Federation does it a little bit different than the U S so try right now wishes that we were doing it like Brazil. <laughs> yeah. <Here> we go. <laughs> That's right. I don't think people realize how nice that would be. Not just saying because I'm in that position right now, but like you could be sitting on all your sponsor calls being like, Hey, we're the team. You can, you can, you can get on board with us. Yeah. You know, what's going to happen. You know, you're building your brand and like, instead it's like, we're not sure, you know, like, <laughs> and it's, there's oh. so much on the line here besides, you know, I mean, lifelong dream, the Olympics, but you have that label of being an Olympian for. He'll come back. Yeah, he'll come back. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the thing. Tries just hitting on it, it. Look at the Olympians in the U.S. in the volleyball world, the beach world. Like, like Dane Blanton and Eric Van Moana have, have gotten incredibly successful careers based yeah. on their gold medals, right? Yeah. And, and they were really amazing volleyball players. But neither one of them was was the most winning of their era. Yeah. But that gold medal changes everything. Yeah. Right. And even even just being an Olympian, look at some of our Olympians. You know, Jake, Casey Patterson, Rosie, oh, yeah. have all utilized that to sponsorship, right? Improvements. Hey, try. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think one of the <clears throat> one of the things, and I don't know where you cut off, try, but that's what Misty and Carrie, what they would do is front load their schedule, get enough points. So they're basically assured to be in. And what that did aside from the sponsor perspective, we are like, Hey, we're in the Olympics. What they could do then was just modify their training. So they're not killing themselves in the three, four months leading up to the Olympics. They're saying, actually, we're going to pick and choose our events. We're going to train to peak at the exact time we need to 
instead of like running on fumes. And sometimes that works. Like if you look at um, in 08, Marcio and Fabio mm. were chronologically the last team to get into the Olympics. And they were like limping their way in, but then they got in. So the pressure was completely off and they ended up taking a silver medal, almost beating Phil and Todd uh, for gold. So it, yeah. everything's different. But I, I think that if we were to adopt a system similar to Brazil, it would be much easier for like you and Trevor right now, you could plan out your training schedule to peak exactly when you want to, which is a luxury that Mel and Pavin have right now. Yeah. After winning world champs, they know they're in. So they're like, you know what? We might not go to Doha because we don't have to. We might just train and stay healthy, you know? I think, and it's interesting. I thought the Doha cutoff already happened, but I was looking on the um, paperwork and what information. It looks like it's not till this Sunday now. So the lists are not finalized. According to USA Volleyball, sent out something about February 8th because it's 30 days before the start of the tournament on March yeah. 8th. So maybe not everyone's on, you know, I'm sure you guys have been checking out the entry list, like Oleg is signed up, but Norway is not right. So yeah. Russia's there, Norway's not the best German teams, not yet signed up. Maybe they won't go. The gals from Latvia were out front training. Cause I guess they're here for a training camp. Um, probably because Tina, you know, with USC and everything. Yeah. And they said they're going, but they're not on the entry list right now. Okay. So who knows if they decided to change their mind or if that just hasn't finalized yet. Yeah. So I, I think there's another interesting aspect to this for American fans to think about, uh, which is this country quota idea, right? Some of the American fans might be wondering, because I see this question coming up on forums sometimes, like, are they doing country quotas locally or far away? What's the date? This one in particular is going to be on the 18th of February. So it's two weeks from Thursday. And the guys and gals getting ready for it there's one caveat, right? And try, you probably have never had to worry about this, but um, if you don't have enough points to be in the qualifier, you can't play in the country club. Yeah. We, we allow six teams to technically sign up, right? I try and correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's, it's six, three typically are in. Yep. And then three are typically playing that country code over one last spot because a country can have a maximum of four teams in a tournament. And so uh, other than the host country, of course. And, and so what's interesting is watch out for this country quota for men, because I know now that um, Billy signed up with Andy Benish, but Andy's got no points, right? So Billy Allen and Andy probably won't even be able to enter the country quota. Um, Theo and Kane are playing together, which to me sounds like a fantastic team, right? I mean, they complement each other well, they play the, the correct sides, they have the right skills, everything's great, but they don't have a lot of points. They only have 960. And there's about 60 FIV teams that have a thousand points or more. But if everyone doesn't sign up, they could be allowed to play in that country quota, which would be really, really good for them. Yeah. And then, and then you've got Billy Klinsky and Miles Evans who are, have enough points and will be in that country quota. And then you've got Chase and Casey who will be in that country quota. So that country quota, those matches will happen are going to be at a very high level to determine if the one spot to go to the qualifier in Qatar, right? Yeah. And, and that's, I love that whole interplay as well. Um, hopefully, you know, Travis, you'll be building up some points getting into that, that picture. There. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm one, one spot behind Kalinsky. So, oh, wow. yeah. So oh, wow. if me and Adam do well at this one star, I could get yeah. close to having like 400 points for me. Oh, that'd be, that'd be great. So that's, that's the plan. Yeah. And then next year with this new system of potentially having roughly 12 high level events, 12 mid-level events and 12 lower tiered yeah. events. Something like that is what the FIB has been floating from what I understand. And that could be really interesting because then guys can go to the lower tier. And if you can simply win there, you get moved up. Yeah. 
then you can make more money, do better, and then you can move into that top tier. Now, apparently, there is some kind of um, negotiation with certain teams being exempt from dropping down. Because if you do poorly a lot, you get dropped down to the lower tier. Right. So that try, this is what, and this is not coming from, this is like third hand, like information, right? <laughs> a guy told a guy who told a guy who told me, but you know, it, I, I think it's interesting to think about because the star system, I, I think has not worked in the favor of the players. I, maybe it's grown the game because there's been 40 plus events if you include one and two stars, right? right. In a year. But for you guys as players, not having those grand slams like you had with John Hyden, Right. Those grand slams were amazing for money. Right. That 2013 to 16 quad try was that. Did you feel that that was much better than this current system? Let's see if he gets the question. <laughs> it's a delay. Sorry, Chai. Say it again. Sorry. Yeah. It, with the grand slam system in 2013 to 16, do you feel like that was a lot better for you guys than this star system? Was? Oh, my God. I had I had it so good. <laughs> I just want to play a chunk of high-level games. And, yes, yeah. I'm also saying I want high money. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, let, I, just don't send me overseas for a three-star if I'm at the five-star level. If I drop yeah. to the three-star level, I got to play in three-stars. But yeah. quit sending me overseas for three-stars just because it's for Olympic points. That's right. That's, I, I just don't like that at all. That's right. That's it's simple, right? Is that athletes should be competing for a fair amount of money. The points should be secondary at a certain level. Unfortunately, it's the other way around. And you guys as players are scrambling to make a living because the money in the FIV has diluted. Now, a lot of that had to do with Red Bulls issues and Hannes obviously is not involved anymore as far as I know. So I think if that investment or if the FIVB, who sounds like they've put out press releases to say they're kind of building their three sort of funding sources for the beach tournaments now, it's sort of a third, a third, a third. It used to be a half, half or something like that. So it might allow for the local promoters to be able to do higher start events or higher level events, whatever they're going to call them next year, and still have enough support from the FIVB to provide good prize money. Because as soon as you told you know, random country X, you can throw a three-star tournament and guess what? All the good players are probably going to have to go because they need Olympic points and you're not going to have to give much money and, and you still get all that press and notoriety and your local teams still get to all the free main draw spots, right? So it's interesting how that seems like one of the biggest motivators for these small countries to host tournaments. Well, all we really care about is our local media saying, hey, these guys from Gambia played in the Gambia One Star last week. They don't really care if America sends good teams. Right. Right. And they don't really care if there's not more than $1,000 if you win the thing. Right. Yeah. But it's so it, it's kind of skewed the international game, unfortunately, in my opinion, just to not promote the high level players to the sport that they need to make a living. Be I mean, I don't think. You know, it's hard to understand. And, and so I, what I loved about traveling the world with some of the guys is to learn what you guys go through to, to do this passion of volleyball. For a very few players, is this a true, you know, like life-changing in terms of economic experience, you know, that you can actually support yourself long-term. Season to season is one thing, and that's good enough, I guess, for most people. But 
only maybe a Phil or a couple other people have, have done well enough where they can say, I can retire now, yeah. right? But yet most other athletes in America in most major sports are way beyond that. Yeah. So I, I, I wish we could get a little closer to that. I don't know if, if the AVP is going to get there. I don't know if international is going to help it get there, but it's, it's, it's a shame for us fans who love seeing these amazing players, right? We don't want guys to quit, right? We right. don't want Stafford to say, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to San Diego to get this medical sales job. That guy's a freaking badass. You know, Stafford <laughs> Slick is 6'8". He jumps high. He's got amazing hands. He rips his jump serve. He bounces the shit out of balls. He's amazing to watch. He's got a great personality for, to, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like Stafford's one of the best people to watch in volleyball and a very successful player. And he just gave it up where he probably had five or six good years left. Right. Right. So that's what I'm concerned about is how our sport can survive if players are just bailing when they're in the prime of their career. Yeah. Well, hopefully this new international investment will do some good for it. But, yeah. uh, but Ed, it's been a pleasure. So we usually try to cut it off at around an hour and I have to go coach. <laughs> yeah, right on, dude. No, so I'm dude, stoked. <laughs> we will have to have you on like regularly because this has been an absolute pleasure. I love seeing you every morning on 16th. It's a highlight of my day every day. Oh, appreciate it, brother. You're you're amazing, and 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 I just I've always said this too, Travis. You and Delaney are the coolest two, the coolest couple on the beach. That besides <laughs> Try and Gabby, of course. But <laughs> right. you know, all you guys. I think that's the thing I want to finish with is just how welcoming the volleyball community is, how incredibly friendly the players are. If you are a fan out there and you're watching this, just go up and say hi to one of the players that you admire or that you'd like to you know get to know. And just have a chat with them because I, I, that's the thing I love the most about this sport is that the players are some of the nicest, most amazing people I've ever met anywhere. And, you know, they, all they are is positive and hardworking and, and looking to, you know, to advance the sport in a positive way. And so from my perspective, that's, that's made all the difference from just being friends with Rosie and I, I, a funny one, like I remember being, I, I speak a little Russian, so um, I, I was at a tournament once and I was trying to talk to some of the Russian guys and they just wouldn't even say hi. They hated the fact that I was trying to talk to them in Russian. Yeah. And Rosie, Rosie brings one of them over and goes, no, 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 this is my buddy, Ed. He's cool. Like, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden it was all good and we were all hanging out. <laughs> but it was, no, but that was, that's, that doesn't, that's not really the point of my story. But the point is that it's not a very large community in beach volleyball, right? There's only so many professional players, coaches, and, and, and people who are involved in the sport. And so I think we all make an effort to, to be very, very positive with each other and, and, and be very good to each other. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that's what we have is, is those friendships in the, that community. So yeah. that's kind of what I'd, I'd like to leave with. And it's been a blessing for me to be involved in this and have friendships with, with guys like you guys, because, you know, here I am just a kid from Boston. I, I was going to pull out, sorry, I'm just pushing you for a few extra minutes here, Travis, but the, <laughs> I was going to pull out one of my old Bible magazines. I still have a Bible magazine from 1992, the first one I ever got. And it says in the front of it, the rise and fall of Scott Akatubi. Yeah. Cause it, you know, the guy who owned the court in front of the house I live in now. And, but it's just thinking about where I came from, 
right? I idolized you guys and read Red Volleyball magazines. In my wildest dreams, I never thought I would be hanging out with professional volleyball players when I was a teenager <laughs> and, and falling in love with the sport. So I'm, I'm just super thankful. That's all. Yeah. We're yeah. grateful for you and we need more fans like Ed Keller in the sport. That's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks again, Travis. Thanks, Try. Have a great um, afternoon. Have a good luck coaching. I'll see you on the soon. Thanks, Eddie. I'll probably see you tomorrow. Yeah, most likely. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. <laughs> She's bad. <laughs>